there, God? It's me, Jennifer. I was talking to Satan earlier, but then he hung up on me, and I thought that was kind of rude. But let's be honest, I shouldn't even think that's rude, because that should be expected, right? I don't even know. <laughs> Anyways, if you could send me a pizza, that would be great. Oh, pizza sounds so good. I'm not even hungry, and I want to eat pizza. <laughs> okay, so what is it about, like, pizza and tacos, right? That's like a... It feels like a millennial condition where it's like the mention of pizza or tacos. Everybody goes, pizza, tacos. I love pizzas and tacos. I mean, they're cheap. They're mostly made of carbs and cheese. uh, And then they're endlessly customizable. Like, what more could you want? If only it could be healthy. I mean, it could be worse. Tacos. I mean, I make tacos at my house a lot. And, I mean, they're not that bad. You gotta put some vegetables in there. What are vegetables? <laughs> uh, they're green, usually. They're the things that are in between the cheese and the carbs. It's a terrible joke, because if anyone who knows me is listening out there, they're like, weren't you, like, a vegetarian for 12-plus years of your life? Eyebrow. <laughs> well, you could be a vegetarian and not eat vegetables. You could be a vegetarian who just eats, like bread and Twinkies. You could also be a very sick person if you did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are still sick. Are you sure you haven't been uh, living on bread and Twinkies? If I were living on bread and Twinkies, it's true, I would be sick, but I would also be probably very happy. <laughs> You're like, I am not that happy. <laughs> there is just a permanent frown, like frown on my face. Well, listen, I took my dog, Felix, to the dog park, and he is really tired. So he is ripe for the slaughter. You know, he's he's been juiced. His muscles have grown both muscly and tender. And he's tired. So we could have dog, dog vegetable stew for dinner. Do you have a slow cooker? I don't, but, I mean, obviously we'll, we'll get one. Yeah, maybe we should, like, maybe braise him or and throw some of him in, like, a slow cooker. Maybe, maybe brine him. Do a little brine and a, a roast. Yeah, I mean, all these things sound great. There are so many things you can do with pet pet meat. Pet meat? It really is the most versatile of all meats. <laughs> I mean, with Aries, um, for him, it's always cat bacon, because he's just got that big old tubby belly. Yeah, he'd have some nice marbling. I don't... Uh, my cats have not needed to be threatened to be eaten lately. But again, you know, Rue is like... My queen. She's an agent of Satan, so I just have to listen to what she says. <laughs> Ditches is very sweet, and the other cat- cats are pretty sweet, too. I mean, you've met my cat, so... Yeah, all cats are great. But it doesn't stop me from sometimes looking at Aries and going, I'm going to make bacon out of you. <laughs> well, I mean, think about this. Dog stew with cat bacon bits. I mean, we're getting somewhere on that. Definitely. And maybe like a pan, a pan pet hot pot. <laughs> Take Kobe and like make little riblets out of him. Riblets. Oh my goodness. Well, welcome to All Things Terror. Uh, I'm Emily. I'm Jennifer. And we like to joke about eating our pets. Who says I'm joking anymore? That's true. I mean, I haven't seen them in a while. <laughs> Your Instagram has been suspiciously devoid of cat pictures, Jennifer. Right, yeah. Where are they? (laughs) Proof of life. I want a picture of them holding the Today's newspaper. Okay, so if that were to happen, it'd really just be like, 
trying to position them in a way where they're sitting on the newspaper and you can see the date. But that would be hard to do mm. because, again, Aries is just a big old butterball. Do you have a story for me, Jennifer? Would you like me to go first? I don't know who goes first. Anymore. It's just uh, whoever talks. <laughs> wait, you went, you did um, Sylvia Likens last time, and then I did the Bobby Thompson crazy guy. Yeah, we, we ended on the right note for that one. Yeah. Mine is kind of, it's long, it's a bummer, but it's historical. What is yours? Um, It's kind of historical too, but maybe not as long. You know what, maybe I should just go first. Okay. <laughs> you really twisted my arm there. <laughs> I, I, I just decided. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about what the Renaissance Naples in like the 1490s, a painting by Rembrandt, hmm. some great poetry by Shakespeare. Oh my gosh. Some, uh... <laughs> sorry, I got really distracted by saying that. Some great poetry by Shakespeare. <laughs> I said that with a oh. monocle and like holding the tiniest, like tiniest, fanciest teacup in the world. <laughs> and a pipe. And a, a tobacco pipe. Yes, and a smoking jacket made of gold. <laughs> Spun gold from a faraway island. You, you've surely you've heard of it. Of course. So those things plus Cesar, uh, Cesare. Borgia, who, if nobody out there knows who this guy is, he's sort of the inspiration for Machiavelli's The Prince, hmm. and black sharecroppers in Alabama, and the late aughts all have in common. Oh my god, this is like, what could possibly be happening? I just gave you a really long list. Do you want to take a guess? Okay, it was... A painting by Rembrandt. Poetry, finest poetry by the bard. Uh, black sharecroppers. The Renaissance. Borgia. The Renaissance. The Renaissance and the late aughts. Um, in Naples in 1490s. I'm going to say a flood or the plague. <laughs> it's, it is a flood <laughs> and a plague. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> No, it is kind of general, but syphilis. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, I was pretty close to the plague. I, I mean, that is very much fair. Basically, through the 16th and 19th centuries, um, syphilis was a huge public health concern. Yeah, everyone's dying of syphilis. Yes. Uh, well, dying or rotting from, you know, it's got a lot of, a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, going crazy from? Going crazy from. So uh, I'm going to talk a, a little bit about syphilis itself. <laughs> For those of you... I don't know why I'm laughing. Just That was a good intro. I was really like, what on earth? <laughs> what, what could this mysterious thing be? <laughs> syphilis, what knits all of history together. <laughs> It's like Christmas, bringing people together. And it has a ridiculous name. Mm-hmm. Syphilis is extremely contagious. I mean, extremely contagious. I'm, you know, of the many things that you can get, like, for example, cold for two weeks, not nearly as contagious as syphilis. 
<laughs> oh, wait, really? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. I'm making that up. This is not science <laughs> But it is a very, very contagious sexually transmitted disease. It is caused by bacteria, though you typically get it from sex. You can sometimes, very rarely, get syphilis through prolonged kissing, especially if it's near a syphilis sore, oh. or close body contact, again, syphilis sores. Huh. I did not know that. The sores themselves are typically the source of the, of the spread, and a lot of times the sores can go in unnoticed. So there are three different types slash like stages of syphilis. There are more types of state, uh, syphilis, but this, they describe typically the stages as the type. You'll see what I mean in a minute. So stage one, which is Fair. called primary syphilis, develops as a sore. It's typically small and painless. It is usually around the genitals or the mouth, basically the source of the initial infection. Wait, it's small and so it's like a little pimple? Yeah, it's more like an ulcer. It's a... Okay, ew. But it's a sore. It's really weird if you're into looking at people's infected genitalia, by all means you can Google it and see it. No, I'm not. I'm not into that. And it happens usually three weeks, <laughs> which is about anywhere between 10 to 90 days average after exposure. The sore will heal within six weeks without treatment. And, and that, is, that is the first step of syphilis. Hmm. So secondary syphilis is the second stage. And it starts about six weeks to up to six months after exposure to syphilis. And it lasts about one to three months. You get a rash on your palms of your hands. You can get a rash on your... What? On your hands? Yeah, on the palms of your hands and feet. Um, on the trunk of your body. Sometimes the presentation is a much bigger rash, but it's usually pretty symmetrical all around. But typically, palms of hands and feet. I know that the trunk of a human means, like, your stomach chestal region but every time i hear it it makes me picture like a tree with a human head on top yes if you're a tree with a human head on top you will likely get it on the trunk of your human this is tree where body. the rash is gonna happen all over your bark <laughs> it's really annoying i mean we all know that bark is already kind of unfortunate to have to deal with the skin being it's a human so being dry. But yeah. and i mean like it doesn't matter how much Flaky. vaseline you put on that People are always trying to carve their initials in you. And it's sorry, and it's always over like some relationship that is in middle school or in high school and is probably gonna last about three point five seconds and then you're gonna be like, Ugh, why did I even waste my time carving that person's name in a tree? It's the worst. Wait, so is this rash like scratchy or is it just like you've got weird color? So, for the most part, it's pretty non irritating. But when I say rash and I'm describing some of these symptoms, the thing is that the symptoms can present in so many different ways. So the rash can sometimes be non-irritating. The rash also be can become pussy and uncomfortable. Oh, oh, and it can spread over your whole body. So hmm. syphilis is kind of crazy because... It, it has a wide range of symptoms. It has all kinds of presentations of those symptoms. But in general, it's not really that much of a pain in the ass kind of rash. It just sucks to have it. Yeah. It does get kind of gross because you can get warts on your 
groin area. Um, <laughs> white patches in your mouth. You do end up with swollen lymph glands, fever, you experience weight loss. Eventually, it will resolve without treatment. Now, what's important about primary and secondary stages of syphilis is that during these time periods, you are contagious. Yikes. So then you... Well, and I'm, I'm thinking like old time, you know, people are just pooping on themselves and getting... Oh, damn it. There it is. Jesus and Christ. And the poop has come. Uh, you know what? Just start start taking bets on when it when it's going to come, how many minutes you get in, and then take a shot. Um, but no, I mean, in the past, people are like, hey, here's a spring. Let's poop in it and wash our clothes and drink it. And germs aren't real. And I just eat meat. Like, I, you know, they weren't really healthy. They're sick all the time. And I imagine that so far what you've described is just like Tuesday. Oh, yeah. And here, here's the other thing. I mean, like, <laughs> what, what is particularly, like, dangerous about syphilis is that untreated, it will cause a lot of problems, but so many of the symptoms are also indicative of other diseases. And, like, yeah, if you're not being tested for STDs, like, this is the kind of thing can just, like, whoop, right under your radar. Sure. Or, well, and, like, you know, if you don't believe in germs, you're probably having pus out of you. At any point, like you just get one little cut and then you're like, well, time to go slop out the pigs or whatever you do all day. And you're just like, oh, pus, it's healing. Like, I've seen this. Yeah, before. I would imagine. Yeah, this is not. Well, it'll get better or I'll die. Uh, well, we'll, we'll, like, we'll get there because I do want to talk about syphilis, particularly in the 1490s. But w- give me a second. Mm. So there's the tertiary stage. Um, tertiary syphilis which is at that point not contagious anymore but this is a syphilis that does big bad things to you (laughs) so like it's not contagious but it's like well don't worry nobody is gonna come near you anyway it it's gonna start fucking up your world at that point so yeah uh, (laughs) so this causes heart problems brain problems nerve problems paralysis blindness hearing loss dementia impotence and sometimes Sudden death. It's not really sudden, though. Sudden death? Oh, my God. No, you just fucking die. But you also get these <laughs> just... soft tumor-like balls on your body called gummas. And gummas? Gummas. It also... And, and it's not just on your body. You know, it's your skin, on your liver, around your bone. And they're just, like, these patches of, in, like, inflammation. can also cause seizures. Basically, if you're in the tertiary stage of syphilis, your shit is fucked up and is shutting down. Yeah, and you're going insane. Yes, so I'll get there. <laughs> um, like I said, dementia. But it's a little. It, it is a little more interesting than just like you start going crazy. And I'll talk about why. Uh-huh. You can die from syphilis, and it kills you very slowly. And the thing is, is like. It works its way entirely through your immune system. So you'll have symptoms that flare up and then they disappear and they come back and they disappear. It's incredibly mm. painful. And you can you can survive, you know, 10 to 30 years with this disease. And it's literally eating your brain and your organs. So, okay. So, like, the first and second stages seem like they are pretty fast and they're contagious then, but then after that you're not contagious and that can last years. Yes. Yes. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's really the later stages that are 
the most pernicious because it attacks your vital organs. It starts eating your brain. Al Capone is an example of someone who is believed to have suffered the sort of brain-eating form of syphilis. When he contracted syphilis, he basically went untreated, and apparently by the time he was arrested, he barely had the mental capacities of a child. Oh, wow. And a lot of people start, like, like, dementia is an example. Like, the deterioration of your brain starts mimicking, like, major mental illnesses. Uh, he had been reported to, like, try to go fishing in his swimming pool to catch fish in, like, Aww. talking to himself as though he were a child kind of thing. So he eventually died from... It's kind of sad. Yeah, well, he, he eventually died from brain hemorrhage from syphilis. Wow. Uh. I mean, I'm sure Al Capone, like, killed a lot of people and got a lot of people to be killed because of him but that still sounds like a really bad way to go oh yeah it's terrible i mean i i can't imagine what it would be like to die and be you know that lacking of your capacities you know sure i mean that's yeah the whole thing is probably a really terrifying experience so a a little going off a little bit here there is uh, another type of syphilis which is basically congenial syphilis. So if you are born with syphilis, because it happens if your mother had syphilis and it went untreated, you would, um, they had this thing, uh, which is known as saddle nose, where basically syphilis eats away the flesh and cartilage of your nose. And you have like a weird nose thing. It became, I mean, it's something that you would see pretty commonly in the 16th century. Yeah, this is a really ambitious disease. Like, it is doing a lot of things. It's like, no, no, no. I'm not just going to go for, like, one problem. Like, I'm not going to call, like, cause, like, ugly, like, warts all over your shit. Like, I'm going to fuck up everything that I can as deeply and truly as I can. You know, invading the immune system and the brain is really my bread and butter. But, you know, eating away your soft cartilage, that's the side hustle. Yes, that, that, that's like the, I'm doing this, but I'm going to make you also get lumps all over your legs. Lumps all over your legs? They're pretty painless, but at first, but if they go untreated, eventually they start scabbing over, they get nasty and pussy, and oh, it gets really gross. So much pus. Yeah. Just, that, I bet that did not smell good. And probably not. And uh, here's the thing. If you do get treatment finally and they do heal, they're basically going to leave these big holes. Ew. Because they're... Oh, I... You know, this is just further building into my theory that the past smelled terrible. Of course it like, did. <laughs> it just... People pooping in the streets and butchering animals and nobody has refrigerators and they don't bathe that much and there's pus everywhere, and you heat your houses by burning trash. Like, ugh, time travel would just be, like, constantly trying not to throw up because everything smells bad. It probably smelled a lot like hot Frito diarrhea and then just, like, rotting corpse. <laughs> hot Frito diarrhea. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> I always thought it would be like if you've been camping for a long time, so you smell like smoke and BO, but then also like after like a flood or a hurricane where people have to leave their fridges outside and it's full of like rotting food, like that smell. Oh, God. Like hot, rotten food and camping. I'm really glad that I haven't ate yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> You're welcome. But you want that pizza now, hmm? Puss. <laughs> so paralysis also occurs uh, generally in this stage. And the most, they say like the largest outbreak or the most cases of syphilitic paralysis happened during the Victorian era, mostly to men in their 30s and 40s. We're going basically becoming paralyzed uh, a lot. And for a lot of time, people are like, no, 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 there's no way it's syphilis. But basically, doctors eventually, uh, like, uh, in the 1900s, were like, yeah, okay, so it's syphilis. They're like, we realize this is all the same thing. Also, ironically, there's a church near my house, and the bells are going off right now, which you can never hear the bells at night, but I think they know what we're talking about. And they're like, quick. Lord Jesus save Purify them. Purify the sinners. They're, pro- Purify they're the probably sinners. having sex with a syphilis stick as we ring our bells. Oh, jeez. So, anyway. The other th- so, also, you start getting these terrible lesions in oh the tertiary God. stage, and they're, like, super pussy, like we said before, just pus everywhere you are, uh... You know those Capri Suns? You're basically that filled with pus. <laughs> That's the grossest analogy I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> good God. So you get, you know, uh, a bunch of not great things happening to you. And the thing is, is like, uh, you do experience like pretty excruciating pain as well. I mean, listen, I don't know too much about pus, but I do know it's not supposed to be in your body. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's not supposed to be in there. So basically, uh, bad things... Were you thinking, wait a minute, is it supposed... No, no, it's not supposed to be in I mean, (laughs) technically it is in your body, because it's like in your your epidermis, but, you know, I mean, technicalities are just that, technicalities. Friend Schubert, also a renowned victim of syphilis... Oh yeah. Through he had a he had a pretty bad bout of it. Like he experienced a lot of hair loss. He was always tired. Hair loss. Yeah, that syphilis does fucked up shit to you. Like you just don't get to win at all with syphilis. <laughs> I mean, frankly though, out of all of the th- other symptoms that you've listed, uh Hair loss is not the worst. I, I don't know why my brain was like, oh, no, not hair <laughs> dun, loss. Dun, dun. <laughs> well, it's like, it's on top of everything else. It's like oh, you get God, these nasty geez. lesions, like your brain is getting eaten away, like your skin is being eaten away, and it's like, oh, and hair loss? Don't you get to keep anything? Yeah, you know, that's fair. Like, Jesus Christ, if I have to go through all of this, could I at least keep my hair? And apparently the no, answer you is don't. no. And uh, no Rogaine. No Rogaine for you. That's true. No antibiotics and no Rogaine. <laughs> it's 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 terrible. And you know, if you if you ever read like those like shock articles that float around on Facebook every now and then, I'm sure people have heard about the syphilitic zombies of the Renaissance, where basically people were walking around in Europe with like body parts and things like rotting off, which was like true. That happened with syphilis. And you may go, yes, but people with syphilis today don't have things rotting off. Well, it's not entirely true. And then also, let's just add to the fact that in 2019, we tend to have better hygienic uh, practices. So, you know, you're not just like 
Filling your bacteria with more bacteria. Yeah, uh, yeah we have antibiotics. Uh, <laughs> Pretty much. Give you so a, the give you a shot, uh, right? most popular treatment for syphilis now and the most effective treatment is penicillin. So as, mm. so as long as you, sweet, you know, sweet penicillin. basically get your shit checked out every now and then and they can catch syphilis early on, uh, you will avoid a lot of the terrible symptoms and you probably won't die about, from it. But, you know, in the early 16th century, your survival rate was, you know, anticipated to be a couple of months if you had caught it and you didn't have a whole lot of money to try the various crazy different types of treatments that they had. And fun fact, one of the common treatments at the time for syphilis included like hot baths. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least that's nice. Normally like old timey medicines are like, Put these beads under your skin and then, and you know, drink some urine. No, that I mean, legit, yes. And mercury, mercury was yeah. a treatment Wait, for syphilis. Wait, did they really drink they mercury? drink it, rub it on their skin, oh. do all kinds of things with it. I don't, I mean, I guess maybe you would, <laughs> would you get high before you start getting mercury poisoning? Or would you just be like, man, I know this is supposed to help, but I am not feeling better. Well, this was basically the treatment process. It's like, well, use it until you stop having symptoms or you die. Yeah. Like, that was it. (laughs) Which, uh, neither one of them is an effective, like, measure of whether or not Mercury is successful in stopping, you know, the spread of (laughs) syphilis. Right. They're like, well, he's dead, so he didn't spread it anymore. And they're like, yeah, but he's dead. But it worked. (laughs) And then they're like... Yeah, but now he doesn't have symptoms anymore. That doesn't mean that it's cured. It just means that either they're latent or you're, you've you moved on to the tertiary uh, syphilis stage of life. Right. They're like, he doesn't have a rash anymore, but he is acting kind of crazy. Yeah, he's always been a little crazy, right? He's the weird uncle. Oh, God, there's always the weird uncle. So, so that's syphilis, and syphilis during the Renaissance was horrifying because people would walk around with like their faces and genitals rotting off. Hmm. Now, the first real record of syphilis was French troops, after starting a, a bunch of shit in Naples, came back and were like, ah, what's going on? Dad. I feel weird. <laughs> yeah, they're like, things are happening down there, and, well, I'm not talking about puberty. <laughs> I mean, listen, there might have been some some soldiers coming back who were talking about puberty, I mean... I, mean, I don't think I don't think that you know age limits on soldiers are are an ancient invention. <laughs> yes. Um, so some of them might have been, but basically, French invasion in Naples, people came back with some problems, and there's two theories. They're like, I have PTSD and my dick itches. <laughs> kind of, or like, and my dick has this weird ulcer on it, and I don't know what to do about it. Mom, is this normal? Can you look at it for me? Oh, God. One theory is, is like, syphilis has always existed in Europe, and the other theory is, is that syphilis came back from the Columbus exploration of the New World. I've heard that, yeah. Regardless, whichever one is true, fact of the matter is, from the 16th to the 19th centuries, syphilis was very, very important in human history because things that started happening is that, um, you know, the Holy Holy Roman Empire 
being the Holy Roman Empire, started enacting all kinds of stuff to try to prevent the spread of syphilis. And you can imagine that um, people's attitudes towards sex started to change. Oh, wow. Brothels started closing. Prostitutes caught within eight feet of soldiers uh, were basically, like, had their faces slit. A lot of extreme measures because syphilis was a huge public health concern and people were catching it in droves. You know, um, it's Gerard de Lares. Terrible pronunciation is a portrait of a human being by Rembrandt that has syphilis and you can look it up on the internet and it's kind of horrifying. Syphilis was uh, common to see in scenes of plays. Again, I point to the syphilitic zombies of the renaissance as they are popularly (laughs) called shakespeare and his sonnets a lot of scholars talk about how underlying all those sonnets are conversations about his fears of getting syphilis oh interesting i haven't heard that yeah it's it's a it's an interesting conversation in the poetry world i'd recommend anyone who's curious about that to join join in and read about that conversation and maybe put your own two cents in. You know, uh, he had the Dark Mistress poems and in a lot of yeah. those there were weird like feelings about syphilis coming out. And and he well, makes so there's there's a lot of poems of that area era, excuse me, that are like well, we might die, but we might not, so let's bone. Um I'm thinking of the uh who did the flea? Is John Dunn. Mar- John Dunn. Yeah, be- a lot of those. Yeah, the flea is like that. It feels the- very syphilitic. Yeah. Um. That that probably would have yeah because seventeenth century courtly poetry I believe is John Dunn. I love John Dunn, so I can talk about John Dunn all day. But he's pretty cool. Real wonderful sense of humor. He's <laughs> like, I'm writing about God, and it's real nasty. And it's like, <laughs> and fucking God is a lot like fucking my love. And yeah. <laughs> by the way, I am passionately in love with both my love and God and Jesus. He's and like, God and Jesus like, and my lover one. Yeah, God is a real sexy lady. <laughs> Please go out and read John Dunn too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, there there are a lot of nicknames and a lot of that they gave this disease that actually kind of appear in poetry and literature of the time, and a lot of descriptions of syphilis that did appear in Shakespeare's poetry. It, it's actually really funny because it was like known as the Great Pox, and people in in uh, people in uh, different. Countries would call it the French disease, the French would call it the Italian uh-huh. disease, the Polish would call it this thing, the that thing. So everyone had like it was like all of you finger pointing everywhere, but basically a lot of dirty dicks. <laughs> so <laughs> moving forward, in the United States, uh, syphilis hit like an all time low in the 1990s. Good for us. And even hit the lowest in 2000. So, like, you know, it's, it's one of these STDs that aren't very common to catch. But it's kind of horrifying because in 2005, there was like 8,000-something new cases. And then 2013, there were 16,000 new cases. And then 2017, wow. uh, we hit a whopping 100,000-plus new cases. Are they asymptomatic or are people just not getting them, like, checked? Or what's going on? There's real no conclusive... Come, there's no real idea about 
why it's on the rise. We just know that it's on the rise. Hmm. That's weird. And it, it apparently, like, in developed countries, I hate saying that, in developed countries, for a long what? time. We should, I don't like saying that either. But there's got to be a way of, like, in the colonists, the colonizer countries. In the imperial countries. <laughs> yeah. In the places where there's a lot of white people, usually. <laughs> uh, you know, it has been relatively rare to catch it. A small por- portion of population. But but in other countries, it still is something that people had to deal with. But it, yeah. it is, again, on the rise. And I want to point out something else uh, that is very important about uh, syphilis. Two more things, really. So... Mm-hmm. I mentioned Cesare Borgia earlier. So, for those of you who don't know who this guy is, he was the his grab for power was uh, a pretty huge influence on Machiavelli, and Machiavelli wrote a lot about him in The Prince. If you've ever read The Prince, then great, we're on the same page. If you haven't, you should read it. Uh, The Prince. Here's a good summation and a quote of it. Uh, It's better to be feared than loved. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of ruler that we're talking about. Machiavelli, actually, uh, that book is really fascinating. I I really, really recommend it to anyone who wants to figure out how the powerful think. But say Cesare Borgia was, um, like, I don't know, really young, like 12, when he started in the church, and then he moved up and up, and by 18, he had become a cardinal. Damn. His father was Pope Alexander the Sixth. His father was a pope. Yeah, and he apparently was like an illegitimate child. But basically, yeah, I was gonna say, wait a minute, aren't popes supposed to be like, you know, this is this is the 1490s. Rules are <laughs> rules are for peasants. <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> then again, it's 2019. Rules are also for peasants. Yeah, rules are always for peasants. So, um, basically, he started this power, like, motioning for power uh, when he was very young. Um, By 18, he was a a cardinal. Eventually, he went on to be a general, and he was, you know, he was making moves in the world. But what's important about him Hmm. is he contracted syphilis when he was 22. Now... (laughs) Why is this interesting and important in this conversation? Well, again... I don't know, but it's cracking me up. Here, Here is someone from wealthy family, very important to history, very important to political literature, caught syphilis. Shakespeare caught syphilis. Schubert had syphilis. <laughs> Al Capone had syphilis. Are we starting to get, like, an interesting trend of how important syphilis is in human history. So... Yeah. I thought you were going to say that it made this guy crazy and then he did weird shit. Well, here, here, here's what happened. He went to crown the king of Naples. Mm, good for him. Um, and he also went to arrange a royal marriage for his sister. And okay. um, then he got the syphilis there. <laughs> he got the syph. In Naples. So he caught this when he was 22. Now, um, uh, Cesare, as I mentioned, went on to leave a lead a pretty productive and successful life. But what was interesting is not that he died from syphilis, but a lot of depictions of him show him with a mask on. And uh, you can see it even in movies. And the reason why he had the mask is because uh, it is believed that, you know, syphilis destroyed his face. So he has like a mask on half of his face. And actually when he was, he eventually was murdered, killed in the skirmish something of that 
He was uh, ambushed by enemies. Oh, that's exciting. He was stripped naked, including his leather mask. Someone took his syphilis mask from him and wouldn't even let him die with his syphilis mask. Aw. This wasn't just a disease, like, you know, ravaging a small portion of the population. It was ravaging all kinds of people from uh, all different statuses in society. It had a huge influence on art uh, social mores on politics. Yeah, I was I was listening to a uh, podcast about this once, and they were like, every artist throughout history that you love had syphilis. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought it was really funny. And for you know, it spanned like the the damage that syphilis like done, and the concern uh, the concern for it. Like again, sixteen you know through the nineteenth century, like you know, four hundred years roughly of just agony, <laughs> potential agony. It's like, yeah. if I have sex with that, will I be a Sif? But there is also another important syphilis moment in in history. Important syphilis moments with Jennifer. I, this is this is your morning talk show that you've been wanting I, forever. I know. Important syphilis moments. <laughs> so uh, I want to point out that it wasn't until like the 1940s that pis- penicillin came around and we had an effective cure right for syphilis yeah so there were a group of black sharecroppers in oh, alabama no, i forgot about this this one is well, straight up bummer that were on part of a an experiment that ran basically from 1932 to 1972 it has a name it's called the tuskegee syphilis experiment and a lot of people know about this now. But basically, um, these men were told that they were going to receive free health care uh, from the government. A lot of them, well, all 600 black males that were mostly impoverished sharecroppers in Macon County, Alabama, underwent this experiment. 399 of them previously contracted syphilis. 201 did not have the disease. They were promised, like, free medical care, they were given meals and burial insurance for undergoing the experiment. They were told the study was going to be about like six months, but it lasted obviously around 40 years. After treatment, funding was declined. People running the experiment decided that they're just not going to tell anyone that they have syphilis and none of them receive treatment at all. Yeah, it's really like if you have ever been a college student and you're in a psych class and your professor is like, hey, if you uh, go and be part of this experiment, you'll get extra credit. And they have to give you like a list of like what this is about and what your risks are. Informed consent really came out of that. But yeah, it's super like they they were fucked up and lied to them and didn't treat them when they could. And And talk about like, again, (laughs) syphilis being a public health concern. And this one actually, you know, could have been prevented. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. almost 400 people who would eventually undergo terrible, terrible things if they didn't get uh, treatment for syphilis, because I just went through what a lot of syphilis is like. And as we all know, it sucks. And then also, these are people that would just go out into the world and spread syphilis, because it's extremely contagious. That That is really scary to me especially now that syphilis is back on the rise 
And we are also starting to experience um, treatment resistance for a lot of diseases that would have been easily treated, especially penicillin resistance. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to talk, are there strains of syphilis that are antibiotic resistant? Not that I have come across in my research, but my main tool for this one has just been the internet. I haven't been able to plug into journals or anything, so there could be, there may not be, but what we are... I think there's, like, gonorrhea that's antibiotic-resistant. And and, uh, chlamydia, too, both of them. Chlamydia, yeah. Chlamydia and gonorrhea, both. And the thing is... is Just a matter of time. (laughs) They're catching up. All the diseases will catch up. But basically, like, things that have horrified our ancestors in, like, (laughs) things that, like, in history that have ravaged populations are now making their way back into our world because they're they're becoming resistant. And then on top of that, they're slowly going to be on the rise now. I mean, we have a population increase. We have um, concerns about access to medical care because medical uh, medical costs are rising and insurance really isn't uh, something that all people deem as a human right. So scary shit. And I hope none of you get syphilis. <laughs> yeah, I like how your dog is barking. Like he is clearly very upset about this as well. He does not like syphilis. He is like, no syphilis. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that was interesting to me when you were talking about it was this idea that like, this was this bad disease that people didn't understand. And so they made up societal rules to try and prevent it or whatever you know like yep cut sex workers in the face because syphilis closed brothels Um, yeah and that definitely took care of prostitution no more (laughs) laissez-faire attitudes about sex yeah but and it's interesting because like whenever i read about you know old-timey diseases that like people were afraid of it makes me think of like cancer now to me is the example of like everyone is really afraid of cancer and we don't understand it and so on and so forth and like eventually in the future you know if this doesn't all go belly up presumably we're gonna figure out how to cure it or what it is we're gonna know more and they're gonna look back the way that we're looking back at this now and then someone is going to podcast about it or whatever the equivalent of a podcast is in that time period <laughs> They're going to beam their jokes directly into your brain. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow, what a bummer. Well, I'm glad that we don't have antibiotic-resistant syphilis yet. That's that's one of the things on my list is... uh, I mean, there could be. Antibiotic resistance, because it very very much frightens me. I can't confirm that there is or isn't. I just know that I didn't see anything when I was going down this terrible rabbit hole of... The SIF. The <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm going to take you down a different rabbit hole. Although, you know, it's not about syphilis, but I guarantee syphilis was around at the time that I'm talking about. So just on top of all the terrors I'm going to talk about, just imagine that like one in seven people has syphilis. I just made that <laughs> statistic up. Just one in um, everyone that you know. <laughs> Yep. So I want to start out by saying that, like, I think World War II and concentration camps and how horrible those are 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 really widely known. And that's that's very much 
rightly so. And this July 2019 is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the first concentration camp, which was Majdanek in Poland, and the Russians actually liberated it. Um, And then the next was Auschwitz in 1945. So, and that's kind of a big span, July 1944 to January 1945. So because this is coming up, um, I wanted to discuss something that's really equally horrifying, important, um, but very overlooked. And that's this idea of where Hitler got his ideas for concentration camps. Because as much as we like to point to him as like this ultimate evil, he did not invent them. So bummer. So let's go way further back. Uh, So in the 1890s, Cuba is trying to get itself independent from Spain. We learned briefly in my Havana syndrome. (laughs) Poor Cuba. They're just always trying to get independent from somebody. (laughs) But anyway, so this has been going on for years and years. And hold on. Is Cuba the single lady? Like (laughs) none of these places like it enough to put a ring on it. And they're just like, "Mm -mm, no girl. It's over. Cuba Cuba is the opposite of the single lady. Everybody wants to marry Cuba, and Cuba's like, let me divorce you! <laughs> uh, and then they won't sign the papers, they won't sign the papers. It becomes a really dramatic drown-out thing. And then Cuba's like, ugh, my bitch of an ex-husband. <laughs> That's Cuba. We love you. But Cuba's independent now, so now Cuba is a, a single lady. Put your hands up. This is my Beyonce impression, spot on. (laughs) Where was I? Oh, okay. So Cuba's trying to get independent. And um, like a lot of independent wars, wars for independence, a lot of it is guerrilla warfare against sort of the colonizers or whatever you want to call them. And this brings in a problem that you see everywhere from the French Revolution, to the Vietnam War, to our current conflicts in the Middle East. And it's this question of how do you know who is an enemy combatant and who is a civilian, Mm. right? So like if you are on an island, if you are Cuba, if you're the governor general uh, who's the Spanish guy, you know that every night, you know, these young men come out and set your stuff on fire or whatever they're doing. But then during the day, you don't know who did that and who doesn't. It's not like they're wearing uniforms. You know, you maybe they're these old abuelas and they're feeding them or sheltering them, but maybe they're not. So there's a lot of paranoia and it's it's really hard to fight if you're not on the gorilla side. It's gorilla with a U, not an O. Yes. I really, when I was a kid, I thought it was gorilla, like the animal, because they live in forests and so they named that kind of fighting after the animal and I was like well that makes sense um (laughs) and to this day I still kind of wish that was true but no gorilla anyway so at this time the governor general who's dealing with this his name is Arsenio Martinez Campos and he write in 1895 he wrote to the Spanish prime minister and was like listen this is the situation and the only way that we are going to do this is to just like bring the hammer down on everybody we we cannot really just fight the rebels and so what we need to do is capture everybody relocate them and hold them behind barbed wire and he called this strategy uh which is a spanish word obviously and actually spanish words and polish words let me pause and say something that has nothing to do with this story but in i think in the episode the pocahontas episode 
I was like struggling with the pronunciation and I was like, oh, I'm a white person. I don't know how to say this. And that's true. I am a white person. I did not know how to say that. However, something about what I said had been bothering me where like literally the the least I could do is Google how to say something. And I think as a person with a microphone, it is my responsibility to be aware of how I say things like what is worth pronouncing correctly and you know, as white people, we need to work hard to be good allies and not be lazy. So anyway, I also saw this thing about uh, Uzumaka Aduba, who plays Crazy Eyes on Orange is the New Black, was talking about her wanting to change her name when she was a little girl. And her mom said, you know, if they can learn how to say like Tchaikovsky and Doskieski, which I can't even really say Doskieski. <laughs> um, yes. But if they can learn how to say that, then they can learn how to say Uzamaka. So anyway, um, my Donic and these Spanish words, I'm I'm trying. And, I, you know, I'm from Nevada, and that's how Nevadans say it, and that's not how anybody else says it. So there's always going to be things that we say wrong. But anyway, I'll get off my soapbox and get back to talking about <laughs> concentration camps. <laughs> Okay, so Arsenio Martinez Campos, he writes to his bosses in Spain and is like, look, we if we're going to do this right, we're going to have to like relocate all of these people. And interestingly, he recognized it, but he's like, and that's fucked up. So we're not going to do it. And Spain is like, you know what, man, you're right. Let's just negotiate. Let's be mature. Let's let's be humane. Right. That's what you would expect. So they were grownups. Yeah, but actually, if we've learned anything in this podcast, and I mean, that's fucking doubtful, but (laughs) if we have, we've learned that human history is not governed by grownups, it's governed by pettiness, so (laughs) that's not what happened, they fired him. (laughs) (laughs) And instead, they sent someone named uh, Valeriano Weiler, uh, and he had a nickname, so guess what his nickname was? I really want his nickname to be Valerium for some reason, but... (laughs) <laughs> no that'd be cool uh his nickname was the butcher oh of course it was yeah so this is gonna end well for cubans right i, I mean obviously obviously this is yeah. already going in their favor yeah so weiler forced thousands of civilians into camps um and he didn't kill them as we might think instead he was just like uh what i have a new project i'll come back to you later and just basically gave them poor living conditions and like literally no food and as it turns out if people are like pooping on each other and they don't have any food they die Hmm. who knew really that's how it works i mean about 150,000 of those people died by that method uh so you know i guess some people don't die hmm I wouldn't have ever guessed that people would die if they were pooping on each other and starving. Yeah. Go figure, right? Good thing we're not in charge of stuff. I know, right? We're real dumb. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, this is the 1890s, and the U.S. hears about it, and they're pissed. They send a lot of food and supplies, and then one of their ships got blown up, and the U.S. was like, it's on. We're going to go kick Spain ass. So good job. Like the U.S., so much of our terrifying history is the U.S. doing terrible things. But this time, hey, we did a good thing, right? (laughs) You laugh, but there's a little (laughs) bit of fear in that laugh. (laughs) Sorry. Like, yay, I'm afraid. Yay, no. (laughs) No, what is happening next? I'm afraid to be pleased. Well, your fears are correct. So we did beat Spain 
And then we got our own colonies. And, like, I'm sorry, but anytime you hear the word colony, just, like... Cry a little. There is no good that's going to come after that word. I mean... What about just ant colony? No! Do you want ants? I mean, ants are an important part of our ecosystem. I still don't want them in my house. What about bee colony? I mean, that's good, but it's going to sting you. Eh. Actually, I just thought of one time when, if you hear colony, it is a good thing. At cat shelters, the rooms where they have multiple cats living together, they call those colonies. So, cat colonies. Cat co- I want to live on that colony. I know, me too. Although, think about all the poop. Cats poop a lot, so... Well, it just means that they need someone there to help out in cleaning up the poop. I mean, listen... We're talking about poop again. God damn it, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> It's everywhere. It's all around us. You can never escape. Okay, so anyway, so this is a bad colony. This is not a kitten colony. It's a poop Um, colony. It's a poop. It's all the poop, none of the kittens. And this is in the Philippines. And so the U.S., the Philippines are like, okay, like, thanks, we're good, goodbye. Like, we don't need you. And the U.S. is like, how dare you? (laughs) So they put them in concentration camp and an army officer described it as quote some suburb of hell so just just some nice little thing so we're gonna get into when people talk about concentration camps sort of where a lot of people place it and that's the boer war in south africa i'm gonna talk about that but first i want to talk about one big technological invention that really made concentration camps pop possible not popular that's just humans being evil that made them popular and that's barbed wire and this sounds really 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 crazy but barbed wire is one of those inventions that actually like really shaped our modern world and changed everything and you would never think of that Um, but before barbed wire there just wasn't cheap easy ways of dividing and defending land like let's say you know you own a ranch in montana for humans for cattle for whatever you want right So what, are you going to build a rock wall? Well, that's going to be really expensive and time consuming. And if you don't have machines, it's going to be really hard. And if you're, you know, caging in people, you can climb over a rock wall. Are you going to grow a thorny hedge? Okay, that would work, but that takes a really long time. So what barbed wire (laughs) did, I mean, I know this sounds silly, but it's true. Like, it, what? Oh, no, I feel like you're thinking of something. No, go ahead. Oh, I'm so afraid. I'm going to be a grown-up. Go ahead. Thorny hedge? Yes. Thorny, not horny. Nope, not that. Um, We'll have a conversation about it after. Oh, no. Okay. So, anyways. Um, so, anyways. Uh, So, in the U.S., one of the things that Barbar did was you could have herds of cattle that wouldn't run away. So, you don't need a ton of people to watch them. And this is cowboys right um and it was also a way to say this is my land like get off before that you know people were kind of walking all over the west and so essentially barbed wire made mass farming possible uh which is the grandfather of factory farms which is just a whole other episode but you also get the idea of being able to hold people in places um and this is also a major component in trench warfare so right around this time when barbed wire is being invented trench warfare also takes off and a lot of accounts from World War One talk about dead bodies hanging on barbed wire, which is really gross. But well, and, not and, is it worse the same as you know, like human meat puppet sticks? 
I mean, it's kind of like human meat puppets that are being ripped apart. So it's like if you have a human meat puppet, you're like, you know, when you give your dog stuffed animals. Yeah, yeah. That's what's happening to the meat puppet right now. Oh, I see. And I don't know if you have encountered barbed wire, you, Jennifer, or you listeners, but it's you can't even if you can see it like it's daytime and you know it's there like you can't get through it quickly. You have to be really careful and you know if you are going to go through it ideally you have one person holding the wires apart and then you go through and then you hold it for them. And if you don't have that, you have to be really careful not to get caught on the barbs. They'll scratch anything loose like clothing or skin will get caught on it and just tug. And if you push on it, it's going to go right through you. And if you if it's dark, you're you're just going to get caught up in it. Um it's it's quite icky. You, Fun it, story. Anyway. I definitely had my face stuck in barbed wire once. Oh, uh, why? It was an accident. I was playing. Were you like smelling it or something? <laughs> no, I was playing and like I was a tomboy, so I was playing like sports with these boys and I got tackled and my face went right into some barbed wire. Oh, I'm really glad that it didn't get your eye because... Actually, um, I do have a scar right around my eye hair where it got snagged oh. by barbed wire. I thought you were going to say, actually, I do have a glass eye. <laughs> and I have a glass eye. I don't eye. know why. <laughs> I, uh, it's a very realistic glass eye. <laughs> it was very expensive. I got it while I was reading the finest of Shakespeare poetry. <laughs> That's right. That's the eye that you put the monocle over. <laughs> yes. Actually, take it out and then put, like, a little hat on it and then just hold up the monocle <laughs> to the eye with the hat to on it. To the glass eye with the tiny top hat. <laughs> you, you know, I knew you were classy, but I did not know you were that classy. I am impressed. Like, you just don't half-ass anything. No, you whole boner it. You whole boner <laughs> it. Okay, so now we know about the technology and also... You know, concentration camps are brutal that this is how they're keeping people in one place. So anyway, so now we're in 1900 and we're going to go to the Boer War. And this is almost certainly where the term concentration camp became popularized. I saw it in a couple sources as being like, this is where we think of as modern concentration camps. If you've ever wondered why Africa as a continent seems to have so many problems currently, I mean, a good starting place is that Europe used Africa for all these little colonial battles they stripped of its resources and brutalized the people and pulled out. Like, it's terrible. Um, and it probably deserves its own episode. But for our purposes, the Boer War is part of that. And it's confusing. Um, <laughs> it's one of those wars that's, like, about something, but also about other things, I guess. And, like... I just don't know a lot about it. But so basically, there are two states, um, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And these are the Boers. And the Boers seem to be a mix of like Dutch colonizers or colonist descendants and native Bantu peoples. Um, But for our purposes, I guess we can just say that these guys are not British. And Britain is like, look, we're allowed to be here. And by here, we mean this really lucrative gold mine. And we want it. And also the South African Republic or the Transvaal is independent. And like, what if instead of them being independent, we secretly controlled it? And they're like, uh, no, no, thank you. And Britain is like, yes. And then they fight. <laughs> Emily explains complex geopolitical history. Yes, no. And then they fight. <laughs> I mean, it gets, I mean, you 
you're getting to the point, so that's all that really matters, right? Yeah, I mean, Britain is fighting some other people. Um, Wait, okay, so Britain. Did we talk about this? When is Britain not fighting with people? <laughs> Britain is fighting some other people. All of Britain's history. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, that is like the last. What would you say? Six hundred years of history is just. <laughs> who is Britain fighting now? <laughs> Also, I would love to see a world map where all of the countries that Britain has been in a war with is one color, and all of the countries that Britain has not been in a war with is a different color. Because <laughs> I feel like most of the Earth would be that first color. Yeah, probably. I th- that sounds about right. Probably. Um, anyway, listen, Britain, not to pick on you, it's just true, and uh, we love you, though. I have really enjoyed the royal weddings, and I really like fish and chips, so good on those two things. Uh, So, but this far before these things, well, I don't know, fish and chips are probably around. Britain has like 500,000 troops, the Boers have 88,000, which is not great. But, you remember how I talked about barbed wire? Yes. Well, if you have barbed wire, and you're being a gorilla a monkey or a, you know, fighter, however you prefer to picture this, and you just want to be in a defensive trench and be like, get out of here, Britain, Um, that's actually pretty easy to do. So this is like the height of trench warfare. And this war, I just have to include this, it was really, really expensive for Britain. I mean, they did eventually win, spoiler alert, but it cost like 200 million pounds in old-timey money. So it was pretty expensive. So you got to really hand it to those boars. They went down, but they went down fighting. Yes. So the only way that Britain really won is sad. It's a scorched earth policy and concentration camps. So scorched earth is basically just like, we're going to kill all the food and all the people and all the buildings, and we're going to scorch the earth. And then the concentration camps were first pegged as refugee camps, as they always are. If this sounds like current events, well... Yes. Pretoria and Bloemfontein were the first, and they were for people, uh, civilians who surrendered voluntarily originally, and they were mostly women and children. Um, And once they were in there, they just became concentration camps right away. They, again, they were not like murder concentration camps on like... We're not gassing people, we're not shooting them, but they would not have clean water, they would not have food, they would have infectious diseases, probably syphilis and cholera and all kinds of bad things. And hopefully not the Spanish flu. I am, you know what, there probably was the Spanish flu, 1900, there was certainly some type. I mean, honestly, whenever you put a lot of people in cramped places and you don't allow them food and water, um, it's going to get bad real fast. This is also probably around the time when you're getting fleas, so bugs are biting you. Black Plague takes over. I'm kidding. (laughs) We're writing a dystopian novel now. (laughs) Everything's really getting out of control in this podcast. I mean, yes, but also, like, things are getting out of control in South Africa at this time, so I feel that our, uh, this is the material we got to work with, people. (laughs) 
Also, because this is Africa and this is also run by Europeans, they segregated the camps. So black people were in one camp where they got half the rations of the white prisoners in the other camp, um, which were already not very good. The total number of people who died in the white camps, officially reported anyway, is uh, 116,572,000. Jesus yeah, that's a lot of people. Or, I'm sorry, that's the number of people they imprisoned. And then 27,927 people died in the camps. Mm. 22,074 of that were children. So about 19% of the population in the white camps died. And of all the deaths, 79% of all the deaths were children. Of course. This is really, really... Yeah, super vulnerable, really bad for children. Um, In the black camps, it's the death minimum is calculated as 14,154, although it could be as high as 20,000, according to like by looking at mass graves. A lot of times the British did not keep records of these camps or they were incomplete. And also, you know, if you are being starved and diseased and then you're released from the camps, guess what? You might still die. They think that with the black camps, the more than one in 10 of prisoners died. Mm-hmm. So that's like, you have a 10% chance of dying. And again, uh, 81% of the fatalities were children. Jesus. Yeah. So a lot, when you look at World War II, and you, they talk about concentration camps, they're going to talk about the Boer War. They say that this is where the idea and the term comes from. And then they'll also link to the idea of European pogroms, um, which is in places like Russia and Poland, where basically the state or the government paramilitary forces or police would just run through town, basically murdering and terrorizing Jews. Like, here is your official purge. And, and this had been going on for generations. It's part of Fiddler on the Roof, for fart's sake. Like, they have a word for it. This happens all the time, right? So when we talk about World War II and concentration camps, there are, those are two huge influences that they point to as where it came from. But, and this is what the whole point of my little awful story is. There are two other really much more influential ones that are looked over. And the first one is that during World War I, so right after the Boer War, quote-unquote enemy combatants of the British, but also Germans, I mean, mean, meaning the British did this, but also the Germans did this, would house up the enemy combatants um, into these little colonies. So they were not in the front lines. They were, like, far back in the country. but And they were run a little bit more humanely. You had mail, you had banks, but you're still in a fucking concentration camp. And what these World War One things sound a lot like are the, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on what it's called, uh, the internment camps in the U.S. that mm. the U.S. put Japanese citizens in. Um, essentially, you're rounded up for no other reason other than your, your heritage in some cases. Um, and because it's Britain, these were instituted all over the globe during World War One, and they were very, very bureaucratized. So they had really like good records. Like I said, you had mail and banks there. When we think about World War II, it's very brutal, but it's also, I mean, the Nazis were famously great record keepers. It is bureaucracy of murdering. And this is where we see the concentration camps being bureaucratized and becoming this sort of paperwork system. Mm. So Britain, tisk tisk, 
But the second, and this is actually more than the Boer War, the big inspiration for Hitler's concentration camps is America. Hitler really, really liked America. Um, He liked Westerns, and he has said that a lot of what he did was actually based on what was going on in America. So whether or not it's called this, or whether or not it's explained as this, America was the model of pogroms and concentration camps as tools for mass extermination and genocide. And if you're thinking, what? What are we talking about? We're talking about Native Americans. Yep. So, yeah. I knew that was coming. (laughs) You're like, Jesus, Emily, (laughs) there are no surprises here. (laughs) And if you think, yeah, you know, the the cowboy years or whatever were bad, I just want to say that the idea of exterminating Native Americans was built into America. From the very beginning, we have the mission system, which if you have been in California, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, any of that area that used to be old Mexico, um, they will have old settlements or missions or forts. And this is where, you know, priests would move in and they'd be like, let's Christianize these savages, which sounds like, okay, you know, they preach to them. And it's like Borat where he's like, oh, I like Mr. Jesus. He sounds nice. And the priests are like, cool, here's some holy water. Go do your thing and come here and we'll marry you. And it's chill, right? Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) It is not chill. I mean, again, if we've learned anything in this podcast, it is not chill. There is no chill. The missions were actually like far more insidious than I think people really grasp at, you know. I very much appreciate your use of the word insidious. It's a good word. It's accurate. It also makes me think of those ghost movies. All good things. (laughs) The ghost movies. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't there a ghost movie called Insidious? Yes, there is. It's just funny. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the ghost movies. Yeah, you're right. They were insidious. They're basically like forced work camps. You would also get things where like if native people are like, I don't want to do this fuck off. The Spanish would be like, no. Where we used to live, a lot of things were called Oñate. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. After Juan de Oñate. What is he famous for? I don't, I don't like this quiz. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, he is famous for cutting off the left hand and left foot of all uh. the indigenous men in the area because they rebelled against him. So not all the men, but they all got chopped. Juan de Oñate. Chill guy. When we get into California during the gold rush, again, this is the 48 to 1900. The 49ers are named after 1849, the year of the gold rush, blah, blah, blah. The gold rush is just literally like just murder and starve people. In less than 50 years from 48 to 1900, The native populations in California, just California, went from 150,000 to 15,000. Settlers killed them, but so did government-backed militias. In 1871, Congress signed a rider to the Indian Appropriations Act, which said we don't recognize independent tribes and nations anymore. It's just, it is, the history of America is the history of doing this. Theodore Roosevelt just thought that the white civilization is going to be, you know, they're just going to assimilate or die. He has a quote of saying, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, 
but I believe nine out of ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the ten. Oh, God. Ugh, it just makes everything hurt and crawl on the inside. It really makes you want to take a shower. Like, it's gross. It's a gross statement. And I, I mean, that was in 1886, and I have to speculate. I think I prefer syphilis over that statement. I know. It is the syphilis of words that could come out of your mouth. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that makes it sad, though, is that I ha- I would imagine that for that time, that was probably a pretty liberal statement. Oh, that's even worse. Right. The, I think it's a response to that saying, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And he's like, well, I don't think that's quite true. Like... You can feel it stepping back from that, and that feels really, really, really bad. That's that's as bad as, like, you know, when people used to be like, you know, they're one of the good ones. Yeah, it is. Oh, so gross. It's very gross. Te- Teddy Roosevelt, tisk tisk. <laughs> no, it's true. But the real, the real villain, and I just want you to know that there's nothing this guy did that is good, except for maybe the giant cheese, but... Fucking Andrew Jackson. Of course. He's a dickhole. He's a dick. Fuck him. But he did the Indian Removal Act, which uh, we did learn about this in high school a little bit. It is often described as a policy of relocating people from their homelands to, quote, Indian territory and reservations. The Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, Cherokee, and Seminole people were removed. And when we say removed, it's at gunpoint often. It's a fucking death march to a piece of land that has no water, that people thought they would die there. They're moving them to places like Kansas. 17,000 of these people died during removal. So before they even got on the death march, which is called the Trail of Tears, because people die a lot. 8,000 people died from shit like cholera, which again, cholera is like you don't have clean drinking water and you diarrhea yourself to death. It's very sad. When they, if they manage to get to the reservations, again, this is a concentration camp and they don't have to kill you. They have unsanitary living conditions and they don't give you a lot of food. You will die. In some cases, they couldn't leave, so it's jail. And they were forced to work for hours, so these are forced labor camps, sometimes for no pay, like slaves. So basically, it's just like every bad thing that you can imagine is happening. (laughs) It is quite bad. Also, I think we've talked about this in another episode when we were talking about fair food if we want a little break of sadness to think about something pleasant and we talked about fry bread fry bread that that is a gift from the colonists it this is where fry bread comes from because native peoples when they were forced onto these reservations they would get like shit food and that's the food they had to eat and they would get like here's some flour and here's some lard hopefully you don't die yeah they got Flour, lard, and sugar, right? Yep, flour, lard, and sugar. And that's where fry bread comes from. And now this is like this traditional food, and this is where this tradition comes from. So all of this is going... This is really, really sad, and we should all know it, and we should not look away from it and and be aware of it. But to bring it back to the original thing, Hitler explicitly studied these policies. He... He looked to America for inspiration, bad inspiration, negative inspiration, for things like 
his own concentration camps and also the idea of genocide. One that he particularly knew about was actually in New Mexico, Bosque Rodondo or Fort Sumner, which there are like one trillion forts named that. I don't know why. I'm sure someone has some reason. But basically 9,000 Dine or Navajo people were sent there and 500 uh, Indian or Mescalero peoples were sent. And this is one that Hitler explicitly read about these and talked about it. I am just going to read this quote that I got from a source. It said, Hitler's concept of concentration camps, as well as the practicality, not my word, of genocide owed much, so he claimed, to his studies of English and United States history. In fact, Hitler so admired America's approach to killing all the Indians that he often praised to his inner circle the efficiency of America's extermination by starvation and uneven combat of the red savages, not my word, who could not be tamed by captivity. Also, here's a really interesting bit that I read. So groan-worthy. <laughs> it is super groan-worthy. One other thing that Hitler was really, really inspired by from America was America had anti-miscegenation laws, which meant that black people couldn't marry white people until the 1960s. I believe that court case that turned it over was like loving versus all y'all motherfuckers. And when Hitler was like coming to power, one of the big things that he did was institute the Nuremberg Laws. These are really infamous. This is where, you know, Jewish people or people who are, one, it codified who was considered Jewish and who wasn't. And it was like, if you have, you know, this drop of blood, blah, 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 or whatever. But if you had that, you couldn't own a business, you couldn't hold a government job, you couldn't do all of these things, you couldn't marry someone who was non-Jewish. And these Nuremberg laws and anti-miscegenation laws were based on what the U.S. policies were. And actually, one of the things I read said that they think that a lot of the civil rights movement in the United States after World War II was sped like that. That happened really fast because all of these people were so horrified by what happened in Germany and Europe that they were like, ooh, uh, let's erase that we're doing this. <laughs> That's not us. Blah, blah, blah. But but it was you. It was you. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was you all along. I just, I think it's important that, you know, World War II is this big monolith in our, like, cultural understanding. And we like to point out, like, Germany is so evil, but, you know, and it was evil. But it was inspired by our allies and us. We're Americans. And I think it's important to not let the allies off the hook and say that we were good and they were evil. It's like, no, he based what he did off of what we did. And this idea that this can't happen here or, you know, that's just not true. And it's important to, I guess, I think we talk about this a lot, this idea of like, Bad things happen, and you need to look at it, and you need to not pretend that it doesn't happen. Yep, nothing good, nothing good comes from turning, turning away. Yeah, and I will say, in the spirit of not turning away, in the middle of the U.S. government actively trying to murder all of these indigenous peoples, Native peoples have fought in every war. They fought on both sides in the Civil War. They had insanely high rates of enlistment during World War II. Some sources say that that has created this disruption that is still felt in certain Native, Native American communities. Um, sometimes as high as 70% of all eligible men in certain tribes would volunteer. More than 30 Native Americans were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in World War II, which is the third highest. That's a big deal. Tons of awards. You know, they have always 
been standing up for this country in a way that the country would not stand up for them. And, I, you know, I've mentioned this before that, you know, to this day, Native populations continue to be exploited and brutalized and overlooked and in peril. And, you know, if we erase this history and we ignore this past, then we're continuing that. But I will also say that I think in this generation, I've seen a lot of efforts to save Native languages and Native cultures. And so I think it is turning around. And I think that that's good. <laughs> anyway, barbed wire, Britain, US, poop, poop, boo. Boer war. Boer war, Hitler. I mean, you're naming B things. <laughs> yeah. Barbecue. Uh, barbecue. Uh, that sounds good. Have you, speaking of barbecue, have you ever grilled pineapple? Yes, and it's delicious. It is so good. Oh my gosh, it gets like caramely and warm and it's not acidy. Oh, it's so good. I'm also on the uh, pineapple does in fact belong on pizza train, but I like my pizza with pineapple and jalapeno, so sweet mm, and spicy. That sounds good. I, I'm okay with pineapple being on pizza. I mean, I don't think it should just be willy-nilly. It's a strong flavor, so you need to be responsible. It's a a treat. It's an occasional treat. Yeah, you know, balance it. Get that acid with the the spice or the... When I ate meat, I was one of the people that had the Canadian bacon and pineapple. Canadian bacon is just ham. I said it. (laughs) I said it! (laughs) I mean... So have you, we're really going to go off the rails here, but have you, like, read about all the different types of bacon across the world? No. That is your homework. What does that have fun. mean? Like, It's very interesting. Okay. All right. I I am super curious about this. And that's, that's listen, this is an uplifting mesh, mission at the end of a, Sad syphilitic journey. (laughs) Syphilis in concentration camps. Oh, Lord. We're welcome, America. You know, you know, at least the last time we had something a little bit lighter, we did not do that this time. (laughs) (laughs) I know. One day we will not get any better. Everything is bad. That's just, you're welcome. So what we've learned in today's episode is that everything is just bad. I mean... But there's also lots of different types of bacon. Terror is written, recorded, and produced by two amateurs, Jennifer and Emily. Our sound editor is Clint, who really had to cut a lot of background sound out today. Sorry, bud. We love you. Theme music by Cosimo Fogg. You can contact us at All Things Terror Podcast on Instagram and All Things Terror on Twitter or Gmail. Between your two hosts, we have six cats and two dogs, none of which have become a casserole yet. See you next time.